Hello, everybody. This is Scott Thiemann with Beyond Psychedelics. I'm really excited for today's podcast because we have a very special guest. This is somebody who has been a client of ours for over three years and has become a really great friend. It's someone who's very knowledgeable. He is the founder of Manage Brain in Dallas, Texas, and he's also an executive at Restore Brain, where they offer TMS therapy, where they offer uh, esketamine. He is an innovator in neuromodulation. He's a contributor to the first published neuromodulation study to receive FDA approval for opiate addiction, the bridge medical device. He is somebody who is very knowledgeable and very well connected in the industry. He's also the host of the Nobody's Perfect podcast. I am talking about none other than Jack Cavanaugh. Jack, thank you so much for being here today. Scott, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, uh, I'm happy to be a guest on Beyond Psychedelics. I know when we started working together in, in our other business um, in 2018, 2019, you just were offering TMS therapy and then you added ketamine, but you decided to add S-ketamine, Spravato over IM or IV ketamine. So I wanted to start the conversation around strategically, you know, why did you decide to add S-ketamine over ketamine, and then we'll take it from there. So, good question. And we entered the interventional psychiatric space looking for ways that would, you know, be tied to improving patient outcomes and with an in-network feature. And ketamine is one source, but the S-ketamine uh, proposition seem to be a better fit for most of our patients because most people these days wish to use or select their uh, PPO or HMO or Medicare insurance plans. Um, they're paying a lot for these things. They work very hard to get them. And the idea of taking somebody to a cash pay program, where which is what ketamine provides, is contrary to what we were looking at. We are an in-network provider of interventional psychiatric services at Restore Brain, And so our TMS patients are, if they qualify for transcranial magnetic stimulation, um, are able to use, you know, their Blue Cross card and pay their deduct in, in ether deductible and pay copay if that's required. And we looked for something that would similarly fit that. You know, some people uh, like the Again, I'm not against those those people who are accessing treatment through cash, but for us, it was about affordability, as well as um, kind of staying in the exact same lane and that our patients have already used. We just aren't a cash provider. There's a number of those selections out there for people, and and in the and in a few cases, if they are uninsured or if they are for whatever reason, their their insurance plan is not great for an in-network. We refer those patients out. Um, we want to make first. They want to make sure that they get what they need. But for us, I I really like the people could access care for less money. And I know you have some some interesting views on the efficacy of ketamine, which will be interesting for this podcast. Since you know here we are talking about psychedelics, and I want to talk to you today about MDMA too. From from the studies and the research that you've read in the circles you're in, I mean, efficacy of IM or IV ketamine 
versus S-ketamine? Well, to my knowledge, there's no there's no head to head study, which isn't uncommon to show that S-ketamine and ketamine side by side in one trial to see which one works. What you typically have in the in the industry of ketamine and ketamine is people have a bias, um, and if they happen to be in a IM situation, they're gonna they they like to tell patients, I, which I don't agree with at all. I think telling patients and making claims that are that can't be proven is wrong, and the interventional psychiatric business patterns itself after many of the cash businesses that have been in the behavioral health industry, which has landed us where we are today in 2022, which is mostly big mess. The ketamine, let, let's just go look at the history of ketamine. Ketamine was around for 50, 60 years. It's very inexpensive to buy. And so if you're running a cash ketamine place and you're charging $700, that's highly profitable, very profitable, enormously profitable. It's probably got a markup that would embarrass Pablo Escobar. And so these claims that people make, I have a problem. So let's look at let's look at the science. How does what it, what is the mechanism of action for ketamine and or S ketamine? There is a an issue with receptors, and there's some debate as to which receptors are activated in the brain. Mostly that the receptors that are activated do not include the opioid receptors. And that's an interesting claim when you, um, because opiate receptors would indicate that it's potentially addictive. I mean, Scott, what have you heard out there in the psychedelic world? Is is that this is something that that is a wonder drug that has, um, in both ketamine and esketamine, they share this, this, this theme that it's not hitting those opioid receptors that's just not true. They are. There is a very credible study out there showing that when patients receive Vivitrol, which is which is a, a naltrexone-based product that is very effective to um, the Mu receptor that's in the brain, the which is for somebody who has an alcohol use disorder or a opioid disorder, Vivitrol is used commonly. And it's interesting to me that when you read those studies, ketamine and esketamine don't seem to be as effective. And what that tells you, and if you kind of connect the dots, is that absent that Vivitrol, it's tickling that opiate receptor and they're getting a response. And one of the reasons the patients are like, hmm, I'd like to come back is, is evident, is that it certainly has a potential for tickling that receptor that can lead to somebody who has an addiction. Now, I'm not a physician or a clinician. I don't pretend to be. I don't, I, I talking to educated clinicians, I don't, I don't think that that is a reason to necessarily not write that particular script or that that would be unethical. What I don't like is that the fact we ignore it. And that in my experience in this new era of psychedelics, and that's what this is, this is really sort of the third wave of psychedelics, is that we're so eager as providers to get excited about this, that we want to tunnel vision and tell our tell everybody in the public that this is a wonder drug. That type of behavior is what happened in, in the late 1980s with antidepressants. And I think we know how that turned out. We now know that antidepressants, the newer studies that have been looked at 
in recent years show that we're wrong. We then we moved on to the 1990s and we looked at we looked at opioids and the New England Journal of Medicine published a a very uh, a study that was done by a group of physicians that said opioids are not addictive, not addictive, Scott. And that small study was used, you know, to go out and sell opioids. I just want to make sure that as we're out there trying to help patients, that we don't continue to do what we've done in the last 30 years, which is practice a form of iatrogenic medicine. And that is medicine that is causing harm to a patient. And iatrogenic medicine is really, really what we've been doing in, in some areas. That is, if that's controversial, to be honest about our past, then I'm controversial. Yeah, well... You know, like people like you bring up a good point with antidepressants. So, oh, I've been on antidepressants for 10, 15, 20 years and I don't think twice about it. Maybe I'll try this one, that one, this or the other. So the goal with ketamine clinics is that people go through the treatment course. You know, I've heard of people coming back once a year for boosters, but they go through their initial six or eight. This is this is talking IM or IV and then and then they're good. So I mean, what's it to say, you know, the biggest player in the space, Johnson & Johnson, a for-profit pharmaceutical company, Spravato, the esketamine, is there sort of a conflict of interest with what you're saying, where we don't want to get people hooked on these things, but yet they're the biggest player in the space and they, they've got Spravato? Well, the physicians that, you know, that, that I trust and know, you know, do, do like esketamine and 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 you know we we understand we're in a capitalistic uh society the western model of medicine is what we work under and we have to adhere to those to those rules but like any like anything in uh for for grown adults um who can intellectualize things we know that that system particularly when applied to behavioral health has some big large gaping holes and yeah, of course, they have a, a financial interest in getting people to can, to buy their product. Interestingly enough, esketamine, from a market standpoint, has not been widely successful. They have had some mis, missteps along the way. Ketamine has been very fruitful for people because that's very profitable. So the profit center there goes into the, into the clinician's pocket who's buying that and then selling that. And they're doing it off-label. If you and I were to go out and look at some of the ketamine areas in South Florida in your area, they'll tell you everything from it grows hair to makes you feel happy. Those are, I think, I think those are risky statements. And I expect that we'll see as the psychedelic, as I said, this new wave of psychedelics comes in and is further studied, I think we can expect further regulation in that. I just think that is the natural course of the maturation of, of this particular space. Ketamine was, you know, esketamine, ketamine was the first psychedelic to come out of the gates here in the last few years. I think it has been overutilized. I don't like the fact that we have to, I find it interesting and I, and I don't like it that a, many of the insurance companies require us to continue when we're doing esketamine. They can they want us to make sure that the patient is on an antidepressant. And I find that interesting. Why does why, a patient- Why do you need... think they do that? that? That's odd. I don't know. 
I don't know. Patient care, you know. Well, I mean, there's could be a lot of things. I mean, and and if I had Dr. Taka here, I'd, I think he would lend some things to this. But one of the things is when you take a patient off a off of a off an antidepressant, they're more likely going to have discontinuation syndrome. Discontinuation syndrome is a form of withdrawal that can last. Oh my gosh, certainly can last a few weeks. Continue to last months after a patient stops taking it and would probably interfere with how they would respond to the ketamine because the withdrawal of an antidepressant can be crippling and can also include advanced suicide ideation. Now, now you mentioned that you think ketamine is just the first step for psychedelics in the industry. Obviously, you you guys use TMS in your clinic. That's not really psychedelic. But as far as where you see the industry going, what other sort of modalities do you see coming online? And how do you plan to utilize that for your patient base? Well, let's be clear. The gold standard for treatment-resistant depression, and that's just in the treatment-resistant depression phase, is, is none other than transcranial magnetic stimulation. No study has ever been published that's anywhere close. It's not even close. It's TMS 56, the rest of the world 10. It's just an absolute drubbing. If you really take a side by side, the longest, the, the best response rate is in TMS. The best, re- the, the, the durability, which I think is important. And one of the things our patients continually ask us is if I invest my money and I invest my time in trying to get better with your interventional psychiatric programs, what are my chances of remission? And then how long do I have to continue to come get treatment? Our goal as an interventional psychiatric team is to get them feeling as well as we can. We hope that remission is attained. Our slogan is remission is possible. And so if that's possible, we hope, and I like that transcranial magnetic stimulation offers about those people who do get a remission, about 60% of those people are in a remission without further treatment one year after. What we tend to see in the limited escetamine that we've done, because we've not done as much or as long, but just our opinion is people need to keep coming back for, for escetamine treatments. They have to kind of stay in the program. And so it starts to look and sort of smell a little more like med management. What I wonder how long the insurance companies are going to play in the space. We are in a, you know, in, in a suicide epidemic here. So I think uh, the insurance companies are doing the right thing uh, for those people responding in that case and supporting their treatment. And I'm glad they are. We'll see as we journey forward and new psychedelics are being studied by MAPS. And we'll see if anything comes out that is as effective as TMS and or esketamine and ketamine and other things, if that is psilocybin in a few years or other molecules are developed, um, we hope so. We, 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 we are. What, how I look at the space is less psychedelic, less TMS, less MDMA. What I really look at is, is interventional psychiatry and psychiatry itself is broadly changing and there are going to be providers out there who are going to be interventional specialists who will understand how to treat patients with these interventional therapies 
And as we develop these protocols for those, um, with the research that's being spent, um, not only here in the state of Texas, but up east and all around the world, we're going to carefully look and study and, and hope to learn from our, our colleagues how to advance interventional psychiatric. And then whether a whether that happens to be uh, between the patient and the provider, they elect to take TMS or psilocybin or MDMA, I think will initially be broadly driven by market resources and advertising. And where I hope that eventually matures to, Scott, is where we're really getting back to, well, what's your genetic profile? What are your, what's your genomics? Which one do you respond to? What's the right dose for what period of time? Do we use some TMS for, you know, do we, do we start with maybe an esketamine which for somebody who has suicide ideation, bring them into a TMS program? Is there maybe a, a once a year um, molecule that works very well, like silbicybin for certain patients? I think, I think all these things are possible. I think we're in the second inning of this third wave of, of uh, psychedelics very early. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point. It makes me think like, for example, we we went to visit one of our clinics in, in Naples and you walk in and it's just very spiritual in nature. There's crystals, mm-hmm. there's bamboo, the right. wall purple. Like it's just, you immediately arrive and it's an environment that you want to be in. Then we have other clinics who we work with and they say, no, 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 don't use the word psychedelic in any of our, you know, awareness, branding, et cetera. For you guys, how, how much does that spiritual aspect of the treatment, how much does that come into play for you guys? Do you try to help facilitate that? Do you feel like that's important? It's yeah. Good question. Good question. Um, it's a lot to unpack there. From yeah. a restore brain standpoint, we we stay on the science side of it. Spirituality, personally, I think is very important. And in my own personal endeavors, yeah, I think it's I think it's beneficial. I think there is probably there evident to most people that one of the things that has changed over the last fifty years in our society is probably a foundational cracks in in some of our spirituality some of the some of the old-fashioned traditional uh, concepts that that were taught and I mean spirituality not religious but many of those many of those tenets of of most judeo-christian uh, major religions and Buddhism share share a lot of those same value systems and I know I think it's, it's obvious to me that over the last many thousands of years, people who have been successful starting any form of organized religion does seem to share these same tenets. And it's a good way of living, whether whether one believes that there's an afterlife that comes in the form of Jesus of Nazareth or Yahweh or Buddha, they, they seem to get to the same place of happiness along the same highway of, of, of shared values. Interestingly enough, though, I know of I know a clinician here who's been very successful raising some money who is developing a psychedelic product. And uh, that's what it is. It's a product. And she has alerted me to the fact that when this is all said and done, in the 
fifth, sixth, or seventh inning of this industry, that many of the drugs that will be developed won't have that psychedelic trip. And does that, that take away from the whole intention of the pioneers in this industry? If we're the intention, the intention, the intention was the intention was to get people well. So the studies will have to will have to show whether they do well. But I can tell you, I have some. I scratch my head some days thinking about how we're going to run an MDMA clinic um, or a clinic that offers MDMA in the advancing months. God, I mean, how long can we treat somebody, and how long will that metabolite last? And then what are the legal risks for me to let you leave the office? And how do I control that and check you in and out with your car? There's a lot of responsibility legally for us um, as providers when we when we promote that we're giving you that type of experience, I think. And I don't know how that's gonna I don't know how that's gonna work. And I and I'm curious as to how it's going to reimburse because we're gonna have to observe and participate in the in in that journey sober and make sure that that your that patient is safe and now i'm going to tie up a room uh for four hours five hours six yeah. so mdma it's in the phase three clinical trials for maps yeah where, where do you yeah. see that going is that something that you want to adopt in your clinic and you're mentioning these challenges but is that something that you're going to kind of wait for the pioneers to get arrows in their back? Or is that something that you guys plan to jump head first into? Well, you know, we never jump in head first. I, you know, I've been an innovator before and you do take arrows. Um, you mentioned our work in the neuromodulation space in 2017. Dr. Kaka led that study. I was a contributor to it and helped him find the device and try to advance his, his use of it. That was 2017. That still doesn't have a reimbursement code. So will... What, what I do find interesting about, and, and by the way, neither is this ketamine and nor does ketamine. So none of these have a CPT code with the exception of TMS. That's a whole nother section of this podcast. And everyone who's in this industry should stop for a moment and go, hmm, why didn't Johnson & Johnson go get a CPT code? Why? That's, that's unusual. And anybody listening to this or watching this podcast knows that to be true, that they don't do things without a reimbursement path. When we bill for esketamine, we're billing for our time. Oh, thank you very much, is what a doctor would say. Great. I get to buy a drug from J&J, and you're kind enough to pay me for my time. Well, I'm doing something else anyway. I'm booked all day long here at you know Dr. Taka. <laughs> we got plenty of things to do. So there's there's very little very little money in in doing esketamine. So what do you think then? Why is the reason that they're going down this path then with Spirata? Well, well I, I, to be honest with you, the studies weren't that good. I just said it. Go go talk to somebody who does not have a bias in it. Esketamine and ketamine, while it has a role, it wasn't big. It was rushed quickly. The studies don't hold up to TMS. I We mentioned that. If you did side by side, then we could, we've never done a study where, where they've included TMS and esketamine, and I don't expect they'll do one. But if you read the study and the outcomes for TMS, it said it's, it's so much better for TMS than esketamine. That's not to say we're not doing it. It fits certain profiles for certain patients. There's certain things that I think it does that TMS doesn't do. 
but they didn't go and ask the American Medical Association for a CPT code. Now, I don't know if they didn't apply or that they applied and they got denied. And so I want to be fair. I don't know that, but I know the result of which is MDMA has applied and has a re has received CPT code approval about a month ago. And so this, this is the game changer is that, is that when you get something approved, you want to have a reimbursement path. And we've always said here in our office, you could have the cure for cancer in a box and it can be sitting at a hospital. But if it's hard to get authorized and, and hard to get reimbursed, it'll never get sold because that is the really, that, that's, that's what greases the wheel of medicine is that Blue Cross card and the Medicare Advantage and everything like that. that well, because we're, we're, dealing, we're dealing with a population too who it's not like they have a ton of disposable income. And so because they're aff affected with depression right. or anxiety, PTSD, right. uh, finances for sure play a part in it. So, and, and by the way, that's the one great thing I think J&J's done. I think we talked offline some months ago and I told you, I said, one of the great things about the Esketamine program is once they hit, you know, I, I don't know what it is. It's, uh, and it depends on everybody's insurance. But once you use it maybe four or five times, because pharmaceuticals are treated a little differently than medical device, a patient may only have to have about a $500 to $700 out of pocket for a year of continued ischemia treatment. That's quite affordable. And so Johnson & Johnson's done a good job there. And I want to congratulate them for making it accessible. I think that's a real plus. The Having a CPT code, though, what patients don't see but providers know, is having a CPT code, when we do our back-end work for those patients and you come in as a patient and we have that Blue Cross card or United Healthcare card, we can call in with those CPT codes and get these things authorized and we we have a better chance of getting paid, not an assurance, but a better chance of getting paid with the CPT code. The American Medical Association has promised CPT codes for this fall. It seems to be converging that with the AMA, with the third phase, the the vibe in the room right now of psychedelics is MDMA, as you mentioned, it's, it's going to happen. And um, then next year sometime, our patients are going to have more options once those get picked up by insurance plans. And that takes some time, by the way, too. Don't just think, oh, well, the tooth fairy came and gave us some CT codes. Yeah, doesn't mean Blue Cross is going to add it to their medical policy. Doesn't mean it's going to happen in a week. Doesn't mean it's going to happen in a year. These things just don't all of a sudden happen. I appeared twice, twice before the Medicare board for a CPT code or for a HICS-PIX code, rather, for the neuromodulation devices for opioid withdrawal and Zippo. Didn't get anything. So it's tough. But MDMA is on is on the way, given that they've been approved for the CPT code. And, and they, went to the, they, they knocked on the door of the AMA and the AMA said yes. So... The chances that it'll get approved, I think, are much better in short order. And yeah, I would expect sometime in the next 12 months for us to be live with patients in our in our offices. I still don't know how it's going to work, Scott. I mean, it's going to be interesting. And I think we're all going to need to continue. I think it's why what you're doing today is really good. And I think it's why we really all need to be talking. We don't get a chance enough to do that because these are the questions when you we're now back going to conventions and you're in the hallways afterwards and you're having this honest conversation. There's a lot of providers scratching their heads. There's some enthusiasm. 
And unless those, unless those answers and everybody gets comfortable with it, again, it's that, that cure for cancer could be in a box unless we know how to get, how to get it authorized, how to, how to make sure that it's safe, how to make sure that the patient is, is getting good value and that, that we can staff it correctly and many other little items in between there, it won't happen. Um, and, and so we all have to get together as interventional behavioral health companies and really pull together and learn from each other. Catch part two of this conversation on the next Beyond Psychedelics. Opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited.